This episode is presented by The Green Grape. This week on Meat and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Carmel Hagen from Supernatural, a company making baking pantry staples with clean plant-based alternatives. I knew it was going to be hard to get through that. And Denise Woodward from Partake Foods, delicious cookies that also happen to be free from the top eight allergens. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hello. Um, So, as it turns out, we are the three women founders from our Chobani Incubator cohort. And now we're friends. I think it's safe to say... That we're friends. Definitely. Okay, good. They were nodding their heads. Yeah. People can't see you, Denise. Um, and I have to say, I personally feel very grateful that you're in my life um, because I don't have very many other women, especially that I know that are kind of going through the same stuff, kind of at the same stage, more mm-hmm. or less, um, in this whole uh, lonely, challenging journey that is uh, consumer product goods. So, thank you. Um, I would like to point out it's consumer packaged goods. Yes, it is You're consumer. continuing to learn every Did day. Did I actually say it wrong? <laughs> That's I didn't so even <laughs> That's so funny. And Matt's like making a high five thing in the back because he's like, what's CPG? Do I usually say product or package? I think I usually say packaged. You oh, do. You I'm sure package. you do. You thank you, Matt. Thanks. I'm just a little off today. It was the traffic. Um, yes, it was the traffic. So, um, Carmel. I want to start with you because I always start um, asking what people were like when they were little and what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I know that you did, in fact, win a Pillsbury Bake Off. (laughs) (laughs) I did my research. Um, And so you always were into baking, but you did not go into baking um, until you sort of decided to make a whole new baking world. Is that? That's right. Right. Yeah. So what, what happened? Well, I think, you know, I was raised by a very creative woman mm-hmm. and doing things that you love didn't necessarily have to feed into a career path. Yes, that makes sense. So just being in the kitchen was just like a, it was like a fun place for me. It was, right. it, I guess I almost didn't even affiliate it with a career path. Right. Um, Did you want to be something when you grew up? Like, do you remember being nine or 10 and being like, that's what I want to be when I grow up? You know, I remember taking one of those career aptitude tests like you do in high school. Right. And it was like, you should be a lawyer or you should be in advertising. Right. And so I was in advertising and I, you know, I was into it. I was, I was a copywriter and then I was a digital strategist. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved it. And I was doing that more in the tech world than the agency world for most of it because that was all happening at that time. So can you, between taking the aptitude test and, and being in the tech world, just tell, fill it in a little bit. Like, what did you like about it? What did you learn? What did you study in school? How did you get into that career? Yeah. What was your first job? 
Well, first I should point out that I didn't really win a Pillsbury Bake Off. I won a kid's Pillsbury Bake Off. I think they're the same thing. Okay, but it, I mean, just, the stakes were... That makes me sound you've like... You've already pointed out that I said product instead of package. <laughs> you can leave it at okay. pe- Bake Off. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so, you know, I was I went to CU Boulder, uh-huh. Go Buffs. Um, <laughs> I was never really that into school. Like, I was kind of always a coaster. Right. But I loved all the creative courses, loved yeah. my advertising program, yeah, loved fun. writing. And right as college was ending, blogs were starting to happen. Uh-huh. So I, be, I didn't really technically drop out. I just never finished. Right. You I never just, finished school? I did 12, like 12 years later, like oh, when, wow. I, when it was almost time to be like, oh, okay, you're officially a dropout because <laughs> you don't have a degree. Wait, that's so, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of one of those things, like, when you're in your 20s, you just think you're such a badass. And I was like... But did you leave for a job? Like, did you leave to go do something? Or you just left because you just weren't feeling it? I mean, I didn't... So so I was just running about eight credits behind, I think, and we were allowed right. to walk if you were, like, basically done with college. <laughs> right. So I went through the whole process of, like, okay, you know, like, I, w- I had the gown. Like, I, I walked. <laughs> right. But then I was just... I was writing for a bunch of different websites and like the hot trend spotting blogs at the time and right. I guess I just thought I was like was yeah. I was like you know what you didn't teach me this in college so I guess I don't need college were you a brand person always like oh, I feel like I, I was brands. obsessed with brands I'm as a, a kid. I still yeah I'm yeah. obsessed I was obsessed yeah. with brands I was obsessed with packaging design yeah. Yeah. getting into food was kind of like a selfish endeavor because I was like you know what tech like right. now it's me time like yeah. I turned 30 I'm gonna do some packaging I'm gonna do some food and make it really pretty yeah Denise, what about you? Because you had more of like a, from like, I know you worked at Coke for five years. So I'm just assuming that you didn't drop it. You, <laughs> <laughs> you were more professionally driven. Well, I, as a child, wanted to be an orthodontist. Perfect. Um, and it was because I had really bad teeth Aww. and I got braces when I was like seven and my orthodontist was just so nice and he always went on vacation and I was like, this sounds like a wonderful career. <laughs> Very quickly, once I went to school, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, oh. realized that like science and medicine and anything related to that was not my thing. <laughs> so I majored in communications because I figured no matter what I did, I would have to be able to talk to people. Right. Um, and then I took a wide range of sales roles. So I worked for Altria for a while. I worked at FedEx for a while. Then I was at Coke uh, working on like multicultural supermarket business in Chicago. So can we back up a little bit? So when you say sales roles, like when you're at, at just what is an example, what are you selling exactly at those places? And, and what like what main skill set is that? So my first job out of college was working for Philip Morris USA. So I was selling, selling cigarettes oh. um, to convenience stores I in inner buying. city Charlotte. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, while she was loafing around in Boulder. So I was selling cigarettes. Um, I, my big challenge there was I was selling in inner city Charlotte and like Newports were king and I was trying to take over the world with Marlboro Lights. Interesting. But that was not my thing and I am not a smoker. So then I moved on to FedEx and I sold supply chain solutions. So like Saks Fifth Avenue, please use us to ship your packages. Right. Um, and then Coca-Cola was selling beverages. Right. And I think the common thread between all of them was just being able to relate to people and understanding customers' pain points right. and being able to show them how you were going to solve them and kind of just staying true to your word because I feel like lots of times salesy get, sales gets like very salesy and people right. don't do what they say they're going to do. That's interesting. Um, and then in terms of doing like what you guys are both doing now, I know, Carmel, you just decided I'm not going to be doing this copywriting thing for tech anymore. I'm going to... Did you know it was going to be sprinkles and baking goods because that was your passion? Or did you think it would be something else? Like, was it the product and then the thing? Or was it just, right. I want to start oh, something and I'll journey. figure out what the product? Well, I knew I wanted to do something in food. I knew I wanted it to be in the baking aisle. Right. Because that was sort of my, that was my aisle. Yeah. I didn't know at the time that the baking aisle was a really sleepy place. Yes. You know, otherwise. Well, I think we're going to, I mean, we're all going to talk about categories soon because I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I just, I picked it because I wanted to go where really, like, I just went all the way, like, where's my heart at home? Yeah. It's in the kitchen. Where do I want to be in the grocery store? Plus, Whole Foods was kind of just my happy place. Mm-hmm. 
And I think like moving to New York, I also had spent a good chunk of time feeling homesick. And I was like, I just have to be closer to Whole Foods, whatever I do next. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so you basically were like, I'm going to go for sprinkles. I mean, how did it? S- it what? started because yeah. I was actually obsessed with coconut sugar. Okay. Like coming, a carryover from Boulder, Colorado, yeah. where sort of like the emergence yes. of lots of new ingredients and For a lot sure. of early adopting happening there, I'd gotten obsessed with coconut sugar. And particularly in sort of things like confectionery, it's very difficult to work with the natural sweeteners mm-hmm. on like a cup for cup basis, right? You need to do a lot of customization. And that's hard for people because liquid sweeteners is very different right. ca- from like a chemistry perspective than yeah. like, a, like a cane sugar. And I had been working with coconut sugar for a couple of years and I was like, this stuff is amazing. Why don't more people know about this? Right. And now that's, it's been four years, right? But at the time, people still, like, they were like, oh, I, I could never eat coconut sugar because I hate the taste of coconut. Right. It's like, it doesn't taste like coconut. Right, it's totally right, different. Right. But I started with a coconut sugar product. I was like, I'm going to do a fine grain coconut sugar branded in the way that I think it really needs to be branded to share the right. message around using this in your kitchen as a real alternative to refined sugar. Cool. And that's how it got started. And then, and did you do, I mean, because the difference, I think, between the two of you and me is that you're both... I don't want to say smart because oh, that actually Allie. sounds you really play that card. No, no, true. no, no. I don't mean it that way. I just mean like you both actually knew to oh. do some research and like knew to look at perhaps like other coconut sugars on the market and like really dig in a little bit or mm, mm-hmm. did you not? And you were just like, I'm going to get it and make it pretty. And right. This is a podcast for entrepreneurs. So we yes. should share that. Good. Okay. Very so. Much so. Right. So I approached this, I guess, as a carryover from tech. So what I'd been doing in tech is I was basically running like mini agencies inside of tech companies Um, and inside the tech world and now in a lot of other places. But there's really this mentality of like, okay, fail fast, come out with an MVP. Okay. Uh, just you can't really fail fast in with food. food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it's really expensive. It's very expensive. Yeah. But I didn't know that yet. Ah, I didn't got know it. that. So the idea was, you know, like put my all into an MVP product, yep. like see if, test, test the thesis. Mm-hmm. So I did always go into it with like, I have this thesis about coconut sugar. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a problem in the world that people don't use it enough and I want to solve it. And I think the way that it needs to be solved is by positioning it in a specific way, which is what I'm going to do. Right. And then I'm going to try to, you know, make some, a big list of checkboxes that if I can complete all those things and get the right market data, I'll move forward. So that's kind of how I did it. And how did it go from coconut sugar to like beautiful, fun sprinkles? Yeah. Well, I'd gotten a little smarter. You know, I think that my initial goal in getting into food was like, I just need to learn food, mm-hmm. really. So working with something very simple, you know, coconut sugar, especially now, like it's a commodity. Right. I'm not going to well, build. Right. I was going to say, it's like collagen. Everyone kind of gets it from the same place and they put different packages on it. And that's what distinguishes brand to brand. I would imagine mm-hmm. it's similar with something like coconut sugar. There's very few differentiating factors. Yes. Right. So uh, having fine grain was our differentiator and like that was it. Right. So... once I'd kind of gotten my feet wet and gotten my sea legs in the food world and I was like you know what I can do this now like I'm Mm -hmm. no longer as intimidated as I was the first year which we should say out loud is extraordinarily intimidating very much so yeah like like it's almost too terrified to get out of bed terrifying which I'd never been 10 years of being like the most cocky little asshole in tech like yeah. thinking I knew everything and then finally I started my own company and I was like oh I don't know (laughs) yeah it's 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 humbling very humbling. But there really what happened was I was like, okay, this is going to work for me. I right. want to double down in this. But I need to really find a, a big section of the baking aisle that right. I can dig my teeth into and build a real big right. scalable business Right, not just a commodity in. product yeah. that's packaged well. Yeah. yeah. And the decorative space just does not exist in natural. No. And it's so fun it's to so like fun. be building it. So that's what yeah. we're doing. So we're going to get more into that. And then, but I do want to, Denise, you were working at Coke when you had Vivi and then she had a lot of allergies and then you were like, I'm out. That's pretty much the story. We were in my living room in the summer of 2016. My nanny was like, why is your one-year-old daughter on a paleo diet? I was like, good question, because all of the baked goods that exist that she can eat either taste gross or have gross ingredients. And I'm traveling all the time and working all the time and don't have time to make everything from scratch. And wise Martha said, you should start a food company. 
And wow. so I did. <laughs> and what was your, like, what was your first step? And did you, did you, because I feel like, be, for some reason, I feel like since you worked at Coke, you would know to, like, look into the competitive set of allergen-free cookies or what the market size is or who, like, any of that stuff? Did you look at any of that big stuff or did you just try to make a product? Because I was a consumer in that space, I felt like I had a really good understanding of the competitive landscape and I knew what was wrong with the things that existed and why I didn't like them and why I felt like other moms like me wouldn't like them. And and I knew what I wanted, which was for things to taste good, have ingredients you feel good about giving your family and to be allergy friendly. So just about anybody can enjoy them. I mean, for both of you guys, so for me, it was, I, you know, we had these sauces, we knew the recipes, we made tabletop versions, then we figured out like, oh, you're not actually allowed to use fresh lemongrass, like for public consumption because Mm -hmm. of spores and whatnot. So we're like, okay, Mm -hmm. we'll switch to, you know, frozen. For you guys, though, you're not actually making the sprinkles or the cookies in your kitchen or in your, like, you know, in my case, Haven's Kitchen, right? So how did you even know? And this is, you're right, Carmel, like, the people that are listening to this are at our stage or earlier. Um, And they, and some of them haven't even started yet. They have an idea for a product or they're, they have something, you know, and they're ready to go. But how did you even take step one about finding the right person to actually make these things for you to then, and designing a package and figuring out sort of supply chain? Like, how did you even think about it? Thank goodness for Google. I feel like I spent the first like three months on Google, like 20 hours a day. Um, from a manufacturing perspective, you know, I wouldn't have been against working in a commercial kitchen initially just while we got our sea legs, but because we make an allergy sensitive product, I wanted to reduce the risk of cross contamination. And so it was really important for us from day one to go into a manufacturing facility that would be safe. Um, and really, I think I found our co-packer through like archives, like page 14 of a three-year-old thread that was running on a food manufacturing website somewhere and it's just like digging through the internet over and over again for our packaging designer there was a startup whose packaging I really liked and so I would literally just spend time looking up and I actually like your packaging Carmel so I looked up you guys and packaging her packaging is like beyond so gorgeous and so I would just look up like Haven's Kitchen packaging supernatural packaging until we could find different packaging agencies so just googled my way to it and you and you called up this co-packer and you're like hey I want to make a cookie but it's not like any of the cookies you make now and did you did you go back and forth a bunch of times on the formula and did he or she, I'm imagining it's a it's he. It's a he. Yeah. And um, initially he thought I was a lunatic because right. he works with much larger companies. I think we're the only startup in their facility. Right. And so there was that was probably our biggest challenge in coming to market was convincing them to work with us. But right. I think he saw that eventually that I'm not that much of a lunatic and that we were <laughs> moving in the right direction in terms of like getting a formulation. So we found a product a f- product formulator for that food scientist who I also found via Google. Google That's is so just cool. great. I mean, go Google. And Carmel, what about how did you figure out which dye, you know, yeah. which natural dyes worked on sprinkles and how the saturation of the color and Yeah. I mean. So I think the the big challenge so walking into the the non existent decorative space and natural, the question was, does this not exist because I'm the only person in the world that actually wants this or does right. it not exist because natural colors really suck that bad? Right. Cause for those of us who did yeah. bake with natural colors, it was all those like super like seventies yeah. couch like colors. Couch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean now they're kind of cool, but not for actually baking. You want pops of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question was, are those the colors? Like if, right. and if that was all I had to work with, I wasn't going to do it. Right. So I had to, I guess I'm a really hands-on person and I wasn't just going to call up somebody and have them give me their rundown. And it's really right. good that I didn't. So what I did was I just got you, it's very easy to call up suppliers and get samples. Right. So I just, and I kind of encourage people to do this, you know, when you're working through your supply chain, like get samples and test everything yourself. Yeah. So I just had like about a hundred natural colors sent to my place. Wow. And I just tested them in everything from batters to frosting I put acid in them to see if they're pH sensitive, like right. bean soda, 
heat, light. So you got a little mad scientist. I got really, I actually had blisters on my hands from stirring frosting. Wow. Like it was, like, it's kind of a fun story to <laughs> yeah. tell. Yeah. You should just, yeah, use yeah. that going forward in your <laughs> TED talk. <laughs> but that's how I found the, the set of colors that we ultimately worked with. Right. And they were ones that nobody would have told me to work with. Right. Interesting. I think, you know, it was a really, it was a really critical exercise because it was not just like I had to prove if I had just taken the first colors people they were like here take a tumor put it in an envelope give right. it to people yeah it would have been not good right and no. the truth is is that the natural color world is very difficult still yep and this product that we're working on now you know in the labs and it, it needs to be shelf the shelf stable <laughs> side of things and, right. You know, natural colors are complicated. And a lot of the stuff that we do, we set out with this vision of what we can do in the kitchen and turning it into something that you can put on the shelf. Right. It's a completely different world. Oh, yes, it is. But it's really fun. Like going down into the weeds on it, mm -hmm. if you have that kind of like, yeah. you get excited about problem solving. For sure. Getting no's almost becomes like a little bit fun. Like someone yeah. told me no yesterday on a sprinkle that I want to do. Oh. And I was like, ha ha. As a matter of like, fact, Here it's a go. yes, buddy. <laughs> it's like, I'll call you when I find the person that can do it. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the whole business stuff. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is presented by The Green Grape, a family of three businesses on Fulton Street committed to supporting small-scale farms, celebrating seasonality, and delighting our customers. Order local, pasture-raised meats and cheeses to pair with our selection of fine wines and spirits, and we'll deliver it to your door at no extra charge. From great local gifts to providing you all you need for a delicious meal, The Green Grape offers truly special and hard-to-find products created by New York's community of local makers. Support independent grocers and our site to learn more. Visit greengrape.com. That's green with an E. G-R-E-E-N-E-G-R-A-P-E.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. My name is Carrie Diamond, and I'm the host of Radio Cherry Bomb here on HRN. The show features interviews with the coolest, most creative women in and around the world of food. We've spoken to icons like Ina Garten, Christina Tosi, and Padma Lakshmi, and brought you new voices like Michelle Johnson of The Chocolate Barista and Lisa Lidwinski of Sister Pie. You can find Radio Cherry Bomb wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. with Carmel Hagen and Denise Woodard from Supernatural and Partake Foods. Okay, so you both quit your day jobs. You're both coming out with a product. I just want to, did you think about the future when you guys were starting? I mean, because ever you know, there is sort of like a tendency, especially I think female founders, we tend to come out with products that we need ourselves. There's, you know, we see a big, we're not necessarily going and analyzing the marketplace the way that traditionally, again, not saying all women are men, but a lot of times women come out with products that are things that they were looking for in the market that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And in, in my case, I didn't think about scaling it or, you know, an eventual exit of it. I knew that I didn't want another brick and mortar experience. So I knew that unless it could really work and the money could really work and the margins could work. It wasn't really worth it. But at the time when you guys started, were you thinking about scale? I will say that I was. So yeah. prior to launching Partake, I was a director of sales for Coca-Cola's Venturing and Emerging Brands division. And I remember every single presentation that we started out with was Gosh, I can't. Re I don't remember that well because I don't know if it's ninety five or ninety seven. But most food and beverage companies fail within the first three yes. to five years, and so I would say that every single day, multiple oh, right. times a day. And yeah. so knowing that, it was really important for me to at least from the beginning understand if our co-packer could scale, if our margins were there, right. if we had, if we, if I felt like I would be able to build the infrastructure to build a sustainable brand. So I will say that from the beginning, like failure was on my mind. And, so and I, would yeah. you say? I mean, I think this is a good, good thing for people listening. Like. 
would you say that supply chain and margins are this the and working capital probably are the are the big fail points for emerging brands? I mean, what do you need to make sure you're locked up in, or at least is like can in you can see it getting to a good place to even take this risk. I will say the things you mentioned, also product. Um, I made it an exercise when I was in the process of launching Partake. So from when I had the idea to when we first started selling product was about a year. And during that period, I was still working full-time at Coke. Mm -hmm. And every single month, I would make a point to talk to an entrepreneur whose business had failed. So I didn't want to talk to the ones who were doing well. I wanted to talk to the ones whose businesses had died and understand why. And it was what you said. And then also we found that sometimes the product was just too early Mm -hmm. or maybe the product wasn't that great. Yeah, um, it needs to be great. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Carmel? So when I started the Coconut Sugar Company alone, which was called Sweet Revenge, by the way. Oh. I, I don't know what had gotten into my mind to name it that. Like No, because, the, it, you know, it's, I feel like that's kind of you-ish. The brand is no more, anyway. <laughs> As a brand person, that's the one in my book that I'm like, hmm. Anyway. <laughs> uh, that one was more about just learning. Like my goals were selfish. It was about crossing into an industry without going to work for someone else. I was working for myself, learning Mm -hmm. a new industry. This for supernatural, it absolutely had everything to do with scale, scalability, the size of the market, what's the real potential here. Right. And, you know, I think that the, the margin side of things is critical. The supply chain is critical. The product's really critical. The ability to scale something into a unicorn is critical if you want it to be. Yeah. If you want to just build like a nice business that it gainfully employs like 10 people or five people right. and just, you know, like that's great. That's a totally legitimate. Yes. At, but at some point, I do think that there's a bit of a reckoning, yeah, right? There because is. it can't go on like that forever. And mm-hmm. I mean, I feel, I feel like. I was like a young hippie and now I'm like a grandfather and I'm like, yeah, that's wrong. But like, it's kind (laughs) of true in a way. I mean, if you're not growing, you're not not growing, Mm -hmm. right? You're actually dying. And I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but because the cost of the world keeps going up, if you're just kind of making a little bit of, you know, a little bit of profit every year and employing the same people and they're doing the same thing. I know this from brick and mortar there's no, there's nowhere to go from there. You mm-hmm. got to keep, you know, you have to keep growing. That's true. You know, it's a good point. And I mean, I also would like to quickly point out that, like Denise just said, this idea that like three to five, you know, like everyone's dying that's starting startups. Right. Um, I think you know a lot of it actually is people just give up on their idea. Yeah. Well, I think when people were first, when I was always like hearing that every year, you know, everyone's going to die. Like first year, you're probably going to die. Five years, you're going to die. Yeah. It's really like so many people, their, their businesses failed because they just decided they didn't want to do it anymore. They just decided it was too hard. Like their business didn't fail. Their idea didn't get proved wrong. Right. Just, they didn't continue. They didn't dig in and like deeply commit. So I guess it's also good to say like, if you're going to start a startup, let's commit for three to five years. Yes. And so do you think that's it? Three to five years? Like, well, I also, I mean, I'll asterisk that by saying like sometimes you do put something out in the market and there's, it's not good to double down on right. it. You'll get the, you'll, right. you, and you should be comfortable letting go. Or but. something that the margins just will never work. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a time where I looked at the sauces and I was like, hmm, if I'm selling this to a distributor for whatever, three, whatever, four, whatever, it, I know it can't cost me more than 150 or whatever the number was at the time. Is this product with the integrity that I want it to have possible to be made mm-hmm. at that margin, right? Because if it isn't, then this is kind of, yeah, this is something you should not double down on. And this isn't something you should go into for future because you're always going to be chasing the money, right? Real and talk. It, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you're just going to keep raising and raising and raising. And that's just, that's like, that's exhausting to me. Yeah. I don't want that. And you do want to be growing. It is interesting, though, like in food companies, and I guess I'm looking at this again from a tech world perspective, you can still be growing without having like this huge burgeoning internal team. Yes. There's so many G-damn middlemen. Yep. Yeah. That, you know, I think that there's, and at some point you are going to bring certain things in-house and maybe that's kind of the meter, but like certainly in your first couple of years. Right. 
you're, I, you know, you're not, you're not going to go out and like raise hire 30 million and like hire. Right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I, there, there are different things. So we were in the Chobani incubator together. And I think my favorite part of that whole experience was, did I tell you guys about my idea for a board game? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I really, I, okay. I, yes. Matt's looking at me through the window, like a CPG board game. I'm, I'm very interested. Yes. Thank you, Matt. You may be our only customer, but still, I, I'll make one for you. Well, I'll be like elbowing in for a free, you know, demo copy. So, <laughs> but the idea, I think, why it was so, why it happened in Chobani was like, I would listen about like the cookie aisle, and then I would listen about the baking supply aisle, and then the RTD aisle, and then my weird little segment of. We don't have a category, but that's for another discussion. And hummus. And then, and everyone had like a different little path around the board game. And the challenges that affect you are different from category to category. So different. So let's talk a little bit about the different challenges for the categories. Also, I, I think that your, your sprinkles are delicious there's no question but what is really banging about supernatural is the packaging and the experience and you feel like you're in a party just buying a little jar of sprinkles it's true and what's amazing i think about your cookies is that they taste so good and they're not i don't think of them as allergy friendly cookies i just think of them as delicious cookies that happen to be missing allergens. So I feel like between your banging product and your banging packaging, <laughs> you know, there you have you have different you have different assets perhaps and also different liabilities. Right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your assets and your liabilities and maybe what you would have done a little differently at the beginning knowing now what you know? Mm-hmm. I'm happy to go first. Yes. I've done certain things differently. So, well, first of all, we shouldn't talk any more about packaging without giving a little bit of credit. Okay. My my design team was a, a group named Miller. Great. And then also a woman, Samantha Sockelsay. Okay. Uh, who is just phenomenal. So they kind of, there was, there was secretly multiple hands on it, and neither of them really knew, but they were both very talented. Amazing. Well, yeah. they are both getting big shout outs here. And if we can tag them. I don't yeah. know if we can, but we yeah. should because it's really it's beautiful, wonderful work. Um, so, you know the, uh, geez, like uh, on the product side, you in something like baking, baking, uh, decorative baking. There's actually like Wilton, uh, the conventional competitor. Mm-hmm. They have, I think, over two thousand SKUs. Oh, wow. So, and, and, you know, so much of the world that we're in, it's like, yes, we're, we started in grocery and there's all this low hanging fruit and natural and that's wonderful. But, you know, the real, the industry is in wholesale and it's also in craft. Ah, got it. So that's where those, like that enormous collection of SKUs and whatever exists. Um, But our approach really was, okay, let's look at the Nielsen data and Mm -hmm. see what we're moving the most of in the grocery channel. Right. And create the natural versions of those things first. Um, so, you know, we, we set off with a nice little launch capsule yeah. and, um, there was one other product that I wanted to launch in tandem with that capsule, which, uh, is a piping gel uh-huh. that, you know, it's just, it's so much more work than a sprinkle yes. or like just getting through that initial color vetting. Yes. And that's, you know, it's still in the labs. Right. Um, and it's not something you want to mess around with and you want it to be awesome. But I think that like, the thing is, is like, don't rush a product to market mm-hmm. until it's, it's really perfect. ready. Yep. They really only get one chance. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. This piping gel is kind of like a toothpaste, right? It's like the perfect, you got to get this consistency on this gel mm-hmm. just to be like gorgeous. Yep. Um, and I can imagine like the crunch on a chip, the, yep. the saltiness on a whatever, like, you know, this other company that we were with, Ichobani T squares. Yep. You kind of, you're like, okay, great. Like a, a, crunchy granola square that has tea infused in it and then you take a bite and you're like wait what the f like how yeah, they get that so crunch good. yeah and those little things are so important and yep. it's what makes you you special yeah 
So really going hard on that. And, you know, our answer to it is that we just didn't launch the product. And right. I think that was actually, like, the right thing to do yeah. rather than try to force it through. We're like, God forbid, make us <laughs> take a shortcut yeah. on safety. It's also, I mean, a good note. If, if you are listening and you have been sort of approved by, let's say, Whole Foods for three SKUs, it's very hard to not yeah. get that third skew out there. It makes you feel like you're letting them down. It makes you feel like they're never going to trust you again. It makes you feel like, you know, you're not getting enough shelf space. But don't. Don't put something out that isn't just awesome. Because, I mean, I taking something off and, and, and unwinding a product that was there, it, do, it, it does the exact thing that you would be fearful of. They don't trust you. They think you went too early. You've got consumers now who think you have it and you don't. I mean, we had a pesto at the beginning and I took it out because it was like browning at the top where the where the cap was. And I just didn't think that was like a nice foot forward, even though, Mm. you know, Um, and it's I'm still unwinding that. And I mean, four people had it, you know, (laughs) it was like very (laughs) early days. But Denise, what about you? I mean, you know, I think. You know, the broader brand vision is to make meal and snack options that are all, what I say, delicious, nutritious, and allergy-friendly. But we started with cookies because the co-packer we were working with only could do cookies or baking mixes. And so I love our cookies, don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but like you can't live off of just cookies. And so we went hard on cookies and trying to get them as, as tasty as we could make them without including allergens and with using healthy ingredients. But... You know, it was important to get the MVP out into the market, mm-hmm. but I don't know that we would have come out with cookies first, but we were constrained by right. the co-packer. And so I'm glad that we did because I don't think it would have made sense to make the capital expenditure without knowing if the brand had legs or right. even the idea of this like allergy friendly, better for you stuff it, right. like, would go anywhere. But if I'd had all the capital in the world and resources and time, we probably would have led with something that wasn't cookies. Really? What would you have led with? You know? I don't know exactly what that would have been. That's so funny. We have a few ideas, and they're kind of in our pipeline for right. future innovation. Yes. So we have some stuff that we're, we're cooking up. But all Expo of the, West 2020. I mean, right? I have to say, though, I because I keep thinking, like, you know, we're not just a sauce company. Like, we're anything that makes the home cook experience better. But the reality is, is that I think all the smartest people I've listened to on every podcast in the world, they've said, like, just focus on your pro- like you know I, I think it was a Brooklinen podcast and the, it was like sheets 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 and then it was towel 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 you know I mean you start with your thing and you and you and you stay focused especially for us in grocery where you're talking to different buyers and and there's different you know different supply chains and you know for me to be fresh and shelf stable and in a box and in a pouch and you know um okay another thing i like about both of you a lot is that i feel you're both very good at telling your stories i know that you denise you had sales in your background so you were good at talking to people and carmela you've been a communicator probably for a long time hence your test saying that you should be a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) um but are there any tricks that you have you've both raised money um i am embarking on that and i would just love some advice how do you um, how do you get your elevator pitch really good? How do you communicate your stories and your brands as well as you do? What would you say to someone who is going out and starting to speak to strangers and asking them to take a bet on you? I think our story has changed or the way that I position our story has changed as I've gone out to raise money and talk to retailers. I think I used to focus a lot more on the numerical. Well, this is our margin right now. We're going to be in this many doors by the end of this year. And then I think our revenue will be this. And I realized that the investors that we wanted on board and the retailers that were going to be good partners for us were actually much more interested in the story of Mm. why we were doing what we were doing and how we came to be. And so I've learned that it's kind of a red flag for me after I tell my story of, you know, this is why I'm doing what we're doing and this is our mission when someone like all their follow up questions are, okay, well, what's your margin right now? And does your co-packer have capacity? And how many doors will you be in next week? Right. Got it. So it really is about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Carmel, what about you? Yeah. You know, there's, I love crafting stories. Um, And I think, 
that the the personal story of an entrepreneur is what kind of hooks people, mm-hmm. but the stuff that they see themselves in is what kind of keeps them going past the first couple of sentences. So there's kind of this balance between, like, you're telling a story, but if they can't see themselves in that story, right. you're not going to keep the attention and you're not, they're not going to be thrust into seeing themselves in your future. So, so like do for you do an, a lot of research and figure out how they could see how, themselves? How to like personalize, like, yes, personally like drop remember them in? when you were in fourth grade and you wanted yeah. to bake, but your mother wouldn't let you? No, yeah. I mean, unfortunately with entrepreneurs, it's much more like the market size than they can yeah. see themselves in that story. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the way that we, I, I spend so much time on putting together like a pitch deck. Yes. Um, and I, I kind of like, it's one of those things, it's like I take a lot of joy in solving communication problems, which yes. is a nice, because it can be really frustrating because it takes so much yeah. time. Um, but I think the the right way to go about it is to really like, you understand the audience, mm-hmm. you understand what makes them, what, what leads them to find something compelling. Mm-hmm. And then you take your story and, and you right. bring, you try to bring those two things together. It's like you're weaving your story into all these little touch points that are that they have there. Like, oh, that's me. Like, right. That's a two billion dollar market. I'm right there. I know it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even two know two billion. B- I should have said twenty. <laughs> I'm already failing. <laughs> like before Chobani, I didn't understand. You know, I was very much focused on the consumer, the consumer, the consumer. Home cooks need this. I know they need this. I had no clue. I've said it a lot on this podcast what the dairy buyer at this grocery store needs Mm -hmm. or what his deepest, darkest fears are or, you know, how I can solve his problems, right? And I certainly don't really know. I mean, to me, going to investors at this point is just saying, here's something that could be a fun ride. I have no (laughs) idea. I mean, I don't think I'm solving anything for you. I don't think there's, you know, I mean... I, I basically, people are like, no, you're giving them an opportunity. I'm like, well, yes, I'm asking them for money. I mean, at the end of the day. And hopefully it'll be good for them. But, and I wouldn't ask if I didn't think it would be good for them. Mm-hmm. But I'm finding a hard, finding it hard. Well, it's not. Because it feels just like I'm asking. I think it's funny. It's like, I, I almost have gotten to the point where I think that like people are just like born the way where like you understand what an investor will see in you and that makes you feel then you feel like you're like the supermodel in the room or something like yes I don't know if I was born with that either but I do see you know people that invest every it's about their pipeline right and if they have an amazing pipeline they give you money and they do nothing Mm-hmm. And you work your ass off, yep. and they make money, right? Like, really, is there any cooler? Is there any better job? No, it's literally top of the food chain. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it like I have gotten past the point where I'm like, oh, like you're just throwing money and you're like <laughs> along for the ride. Even though right. I will say, you know, angel investors, mm-hmm. it is really great actually to be able to give somebody money and be along for the ride. Yeah. So there is like there's a, there is a genuine piece of that. That's why their style angels. of funding, mm-hmm. right? Like that that does have a very good place in the world that is a big deal for food startups, especially in the first couple of years. Right. Uh, can we talk about Amazon for a second? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I am not on Amazon, but I do, both of you guys have very, very strong Amazon businesses from my understanding. So what would you say for people out there who are selling on Amazon are some things that they should just like go home and fix right now? Oh, go home and fix. Or go home and do. Like what, what, you know. If they you already have, are selling or. Yeah. Or yeah. like you have the, you have a cracker mm-hmm. and it's on Amazon and a couple of people buy it. Like how, what are, what are some hacks that you guys have learned along the way or what what's hire been really someone helpful? else yes that's just what the i was gonna say and hire someone else until okay. we hired someone else i went to all the brands i admired and i copied kind of what i saw on their page so if they had lifestyle images image number three i did lifestyle images image number three and right if your bullet points focused on nutrition first and then taste i kind of uh, took a play out of took something out of their playbook right. but then we hired someone and it made life much much better okay, and easier. do you want to talk about who you hired or is that not allowed yeah, I mean, I would say that too. You know, you you do you can't hire someone unless you're somewhat dangerous. Like you need to do a little bit of the work yourself, right? So, and there's a ton because there's nothing better 
there's nothing that people love more to do than to like hack into a tech giant and figure out how to optimize their listing on Amazon. Right. And there's a lot of material out there. Yeah. There's also a lot of like very young, affordable people that are like, I will optimize your Amazon listing because I'm doing the four hour work week while I like try to make a million dollars a year on my (laughs) island in Hawaii. Like they're like totally bought into the remote work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and they these can people do all it. optimize on Amazon. And yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So keywords, basically, yeah. Keywords, keywords are huge. Okay. Um, and there is, you know, some artistry to keywords. Mm-hmm. What, how, where you put those words. Like, let's there's a back end of Amazon where you're dropping in all these words. And certain words should go in certain places. And if you don't do it that way, you're not going to be read right. as appropriately, you know, so like hire little someone. crawlers. <laughs> Again, yeah. So hire someone. Good, <laughs> what, what, good photos. Good photos. Mm-hmm. Um, Denise, what was your favorite part of the Chobani incubator? Meeting all of you lovely people. And I'm not just saying that. I feel yeah. like building a network of founders. And I love our male counterparts. But like you said, just mm-hmm. having a group of females that I can go to who understand. Because I think there are some things. And I don't want to sound sexist. But that just are innately female. Like in raising money. When my husband goes out and talks to people. He's like, get in on this opportunity. <laughs> or, or you're going to lose out. Right. I'm like, well, you may lose money. And 93 or 95% <laughs> of companies fail. But I think we have a really good idea. And I believe in us and what we're doing. But to have like just a a cohort of people that can understand and get it is wonderful. What about you, Carmel? Uh, So, I mean, I just, I never, it never ceases to amaze me how often I like think I'm alone in the world and like facing (laughs) problems that nobody's ever faced before. And the reality is like, no, you're not. Right. So getting around other entrepreneurs. Yes. And just like, thank God feeling, just feeling like a little normal. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was like camp for like, you know, this weird talent that you have that you don't, that no one at school has. And you get to go and like spend a few weeks with people that are like super into the oboe. And you shout know. out to Chobani. Yeah, I mean, no, for the sure. The kind of program that they've put together—it's amazing. It's amazing. And I, you know, I at one point in my history, like, was working was like a startup starting startups. Like, it's not easy. We ran a program for mm-hmm. like a pitch competition, mm-hmm. and um, it is really difficult to provide valuable services yes. to startups. I think it's valuable every day, mm-hmm. literally almost every day. Okay, I have two more questions because Matt is giving me the eye. Um, what would your number one piece of advice be to an emerging founder right now? Like some people have said like self-care. Some people Mm -hmm. have said find a mentor. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's what do you wish someone had said to you when you first started off doing this? This is the hardest by far the hardest thing I've ever done. And I think like arrogantly I went in thinking, well, I'm smart and I'm efficient and I can do this but it kicks your ass every single day, <laughs> no matter what. Like there's amazing times and I don't, there's nothing else I wish I was rather doing, uh, like yeah. I'd rather be doing, but it's really hard. So just like checking in with yourself beforehand and knowing like, am I cut out for this? Do I really want to do this? Am I right. dedicated to this idea? Yep. What about you, Karma? Well, I did get told something really good and I, I think about it regularly. So I'm just going to share that. Um, so, it was actually like I was interviewing Seth Godin, like when uh-huh. I was like a little kid, when I was like I twenty for one of those. Yeah, uh-huh. and I said like basically said this same question, like what's the one thing you would say to someone that's just getting started on their career? And in a very like Seth Godin way, he just said, "Start." Oh. And I feel like you know every like the days where I wake up and I'm like, God, like this to do list is like insurmountable. I'm like frozen by all the shit. Like if you just like every you just start, like, yeah, just like one foot in front of the other. This yeah. is going to be a long road. Just start. Like, yeah. simplify it down. And, like, just get moving. And that's, like, once you do that, it's so much better. Seth Goldman from Honest Tea, I talked to him before I left, and that was the advice he gave me as well. Wow. Seth, oh, really? All mm-hmm. the Seths. The, Seth. the same. Mm-hmm. The secret of yeah. Seth. Start. I do think there's something about looking at it like a game. Like, just looking at it like, oh, this is a fun puzzle that I get to solve. Like, the fitments mm-hmm. don't match the thing. And, yeah. oh, by the way, they might melt or whatever. Like, huh, I'm not going to have a panic attack about that. I'm going to actually just think, like, there is always going to be a solution. There is a way to do this. I mm-hmm. just have to find it and figure it out, right? Um, what's the most fun that you've had so far along the journey? Like, what, what's a day that was just like, ah, oh, this was a win? 
I remember one time we were in Brooklyn Fair on Greenwich Street and it's near my daughter's swimming lessons and we were walking down the cookie aisle and she spotted our cookies and she ran down the aisle and was like mommy's cookies and I thought I might just melt into a puddle of feelings right there. That's an amazing day. I just got chills. Yeah, the aisle moments are real. When we first launched, when we launched Supernatural as a holiday launch and I went to my Whole Foods in Tribeca and I looked at the shelf and there was just this giant hole. And I was like, what happened? Like, what? Like, yeah, everything's wrong. Awful. Like, calling the distributor. Yes. I'm like, oh. And we'd sold out. And yes. I, that was the coolest. That yeah. was the coolest feeling. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what we didn't talk about, which is amazing? We didn't talk about being moms or being really oh, women yeah. very much. But um, we ran out of time. So <laughs> I guess it's, you know, there are other things that are more important. But uh, congrats on your new baby, Carmel. That's Thanks. amazing. Just for everyone out there, Carmel was like gave birth like a, a week after we finished the incubator, right? If that, I mean, you it were was forty-eight hours. Okay, for, yeah. it was forty-eight hours. So yeah. you were super de duper pregnant. I was the super whole time. duper, super duper pregnant. Um, and we did get to spend some time with Vivi, which was great because she is one of the cutest kids so like, cute. in the world. Yes. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys both for coming so much. Thanks for uh, having us. Lots of good things to learn. And um, Matt, thank you. I really <laughs> like it when you chime in. I don't know if you do this with other shows, but I like. I think you should keep doing it. Uh, heard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. So uh, I'll see you next week on In the Sauce. I have financial advisors coming. Ooh, yes, good. all your ducks in a row and all that <laughs> stuff. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. You can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.